podcast with no name. In this episode, we are going to continue our discussion of the 27 Club. The 27 Club is a list of musicians, artists and actors who all died at the age of 27 and supposedly these creative people have done so in enough numbers that people have begun to believe that some are destined to die at age 27. Tonight, we continue our discussion of members of the 27 Club. In this episode, I, your princess, and my fellow podcasters will discuss the life of Brian Jones, a founding member of the Rolling Stones and a member of the 27 Club. And to value add this episode, my colleagues will help me remember my vocabulary. Dear listener, I'm going to talk about Brian Jones, who is one of the founding members of the Rolling Stones. Brian Jones is one of the famous earlier members and well-known members of the 27 Club. He was born in February 1942. Brian Jones' fame is as the founder and original leader of the Rolling Stones. Brian Jones even gave the band its name. Brian and Keith Richards developed a style of guitar play which Keith calls the ancient art of weaving in which both the players would play rhythm and lead parts together and interchangeably. And Keith has perpetuated that style of guitar playing since Brian's death with all the subsequent second guitarists in the Rolling Stones, most notably Mick Taylor and Ronnie Woods. Brian had alcohol and drug problems. His performance became increasingly unreliable and as he became increasingly unreliable, his role in the Rolling Stones diminished over the time and in 1969 he passed away by drowning. That's the abridged version, listener. Let's get into Brian a little bit more. Brian was an asthmatic. He had croup or one of those older notable severe respiratory illnesses when he was a child and afterwards when he recovered he was left with asthma throughout his life. Brian Jones was a bright boy and he was one of those enormously annoying people who would waltz into an exam and pass without having done very much schoolwork at all which would have made me very angry if I was at school at the same time as him. His behaviour of being so nonchalant about schoolwork angered his teachers and Brian was also hostile to authority figures, which, you know, lots of people are rebels without a cause and he was one of them. Brian's parents were musical. His dad was an engineer, but he was also a piano teacher and Brian's mum played piano and organ and she also led the local choir. Brian listened to classical music as a child, but he got into blues, notably Elmore James and Robert Johnson. He also listened to jazz, and as he was growing up, his parents bought him a saxophone and an acoustic guitar, and as he became a teenager, he began playing local blues and jazz clubs and did busking. 
Brian Jones was, how shall we say, actually, people, I've forgotten the word. Philandra? Um, you miss Philandra? Horny? Oh! You like to put it about. Oh! And about town. Oh, there's a word. Dedicated follower of fashion. <laughs> he was that too. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez, I've forgotten it. God. Um, oh! Uh, it's going to be stud. No, it's killing me. Loose morals? It's a one-word term. Shagger. One <laughs> term for horny. Yeah, I can't. I'm not horny. You know what? I'm going to, when we hang up tonight, it's um, going to come to me and I'm just going to go, no. Anyway, back to the podcast. Brian Jones had many children. He had these many children to many women. He at the time of his death, was the father to five children with one on the way, each child to a different mother. One of the children was born when the Rolling Stones hired a manager and the manager told Brian to not be seen in public with the child. This reminded me of what the management did to John Lennon when he was married to Cynthia and had Julian. It was hidden from the public that John Lennon was married with a baby for quite a while. Brian Jones, up until that moment, had been playing happy families with this poor lady and the baby, but once he was instructed to cover it up, he drifted away from them and went back to being the philandering self. Is it womanizer? Is I that the cannot word think of the word. It's... Is it lascivious? This, this show has turned into a thesaurus, I'll tell you what. I know. I can't. We thought of every single other word. And it's not the word. Anyway, Brian Jones went back to sleeping around and making babies with other people. There was also a paternity cover-up in 1964 when the Rolling Stones management paid a lady off £700 and she signed an agreement that was witnessed by Mick Jagger that the matter was now closed and she would make no statement to the press or in public. Promiscuous. Thank you. Promiscuous. Oh, my God. Oh, we've achieved I knew it was not with P. I had words yeah. that's got something with P. It's not prior I knew there was a U in it, and that was all I could promiscuous. If, if we've Brian one Jones thing, was we've promiscuous. Got... Sorry. Right, start again. We, we, if we've achieved one thing, we've come up with about <laughs> 1,700 words for promiscuous. <laughs> so, welcome to the Thesaurus lesson, everybody, because that's what we've just achieved. <laughs> But, oh, jeez, it's, I tell you what, the relief it's in my body. multiple, you know, <laughs> Now that too, that word it? has come out. I couldn't focus on anything else until I got that word. <laughs> I, I, I am feeling uh, physical relief. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I never thought you'd feel that way about knowing what promiscuity is. Brian Jones was from Cheltenham and he moved to London as a young person and began playing in bands and making friends in the rhythm and blues scene, and he became a blues musician. In 1962, he placed an ad in Jazz News inviting musicians to audition for a new rhythm and blues band at the Bricklayer's Arms Pub, and there Ian Stewart, the pianist, was the first to respond. Mick Jagger then joined, and Mick and Keith were friends from way back, and... Mick had Keith come to rehearsals with them and Keith Richards joined the band as well. I was speaking of Keith as if everybody knows who I was referring to, listener, and I assume you do know that Keith is Keith Richards. 
there is only one Keith. According to Keith Richards, Brian came up with the name of the band, the Rolling Stones, whilst on the phone with a venue owner, there was an album lying on the floor and one of the tracks on it was the Rolling Stone Blues. So Brian said the band was the Rolling Stones. In July 1962, the Rolling Stones played their first gig at the Marquee Club. From September 1962 to September 63, Brian, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards all shared a flat and from all accounts it was a squalid, cheap time for all of them. They were young people with not much money trying to get a band going so they were living and breathing music and alcohol and being young musicians. Bill Wyman joined the band because he had a spare Vox amp and cigarettes and a bass guitar he had built himself. And they courted Charlie Watts and he joined the band and he was considered to be one of the best drummers in London. Charlie said of Brian in the early days, Brian was very instrumental in pushing the band at the beginning. Keith and I would look at him and say he was balmy. Brian acted as the band's manager He did not tell the other members of the band that he was getting an extra five pounds more than the other members because he was undertaking the management role. And that extra five pounds caused resentment amongst the other members of the Rolling Stones. Brian Jones was a gifted multi-instrumentalist. He played the guitar, the slide guitar, he played rhythm guitar, he played the sitar, organ, marimba and recorder. He played the saxophone, kazoo, the Appalachian dulcimer, the mellotron, the auto harp, the oboe and soprano sax and he was a backing vocalist and whistled. And they were all on Rolling Stones tracks. He and Keith Richards did guitar weaving which has become a signature sound for the Rolling Stones where they both play rhythm and lead guitar without clear boundaries between who is doing what and when and they swap and change. Over time, Brian slowly estranged himself from the rest of the bandmates. It happened slowly and it happened piecemeal. The manager recognised the financial advantages of band members writing their own songs And he encouraged Mick and Keith to become a songwriting power force. He also wanted Mick's flamboyance and charisma to be a focus of their live performances. And when you think about it, you think of the Rolling Stones and you think of Mick preening himself all over the stage and dancing backwards and forwards. I mean, let's face it, there's a song about it. The manager at the time, his name was Andrew Oldham, he wrote a book called Stoned and he said that Brian was an outsider from the beginning. He travelled separately from the band. He stayed at different hotels. He demanded extra pay. He said Brian was emotional and felt alienated because he wasn't the songwriter that Mick and Keith were and he was also annoyed that his managerial role had been taken away. Brian also overindulged in alcohol and drugs and that was exacerbated by the toll from touring and the money and fame. The alcohol and the drugs had a debilitative effect on his physical and mental health and Brian became unfriendly and antisocial at times. Brian 
took up with Anita Pallenberg, well-known model and actress in the 1960s. They had been an item for two years when on a trip to Morocco, Brian was hospitalised for pneumonia and Keith and Anita took up together. And I don't know that Brian ever forgave Keith for this. In his book, Life, Keith said of Brian and of the relationship that Brian had been a wife beater, but Anita did fight back, but it wore her down and Keith could not ignore that. Keith also said of Brian that Brian needed needed attention all the time and he said that when Brian was taking acid, Brian could be okay but he would turn and become dark and paranoid. Keith also said that Brian's violence towards Anita included throwing knives, throwing glasses and punches at her and that Brian and Anita's relationship was deteriorating as she wanted to do what she wanted in her life and Brian was not happy with that. Keith also said that Brian could pick up any instrument and play it, but then he would go missing and they would have to record an album and he would be missing and when they found him he'd be in a terrible condition. The trip to Morocco was when Brian and Anita broke up and Keith and Anita got together. And after then, Brian's substance and abuse increased and his musical contributions became more sporadic. Brian at that stage was becoming more bored with the guitar and sought out exotic instruments to play. And when you think about it, there's Paint It Black and he's using the sitar in, oh, what's the one where he plays the recorder? I love it. Ruby Tuesday, isn't it? Ruby Tuesday. Ruby Tuesday. In May 1967, Brian was arrested for drug possession shortly after the Redlands drug bust where Keith was arrested for possession. Brian confessed to marijuana use but said he didn't do hard drugs. Over time, hostility was growing between Brian and Keith and Mick and Bill Wyman, Keith and Charlie Watts have all commented that Brian could be cruel and difficult and Brian's attitude changed frequently. Bill Wyman said there were at least two sides to Brian's personality. One, Brian was introverted, shy, sensitive and deep thinking. The other was a preening peacock, gregarious, artistic, desperately needing assurance from his peers. Bill Wyman also said he pushed every friendship to the limit and way beyond. In the spring and summer of 1968, the Rolling Stones were recording and these were Brian Jones's last substantial sessions with the band. These led to the Beggar's Banquet album and the Rock and Roll Circus. Where Brian was once playing multiple instruments on many tracks, he was now playing only minor roles in a few pieces. The Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus was Brian's last formal appearance with the Rolling Stones in December 1968. In May 1968, Brian Jones was arrested a second time for possession and was on probation at the time and faced a long jail sentence if found guilty. He was found guilty, but the judge took pity and only fined him and fined him court costs as well. Brian's legal woes became too much of an obstacle for his participation in the band. He wasn't in a fit state to tour and then he could not get a visa to enter the USA to go on tour. His attendance at rehearsals and recording sessions had become erratic and when he did turn up, he had little to contribute or played so badly that they turned his amp off and Keith later recorded all the guitar rolls. During the sessions, recording sessions in 1969 of Let It Bleed, uh, Mick told Brian that he would be fired if he didn't turn up to a photo session. 
Brian turned up, but he looked frail. And it is easy to find photos from that photo session on the internet. And Brian does. He looks little and he looks, he was a little man, but he looks little and he looks ill. On the 8th of June, 1969, Mick, Keith and Charlie Watts visited Brian. They told Brian that the Rolling Stones would continue without him. And to the public, they wanted it to appear as if Brian left voluntarily. The band members told Brian that it was his choice what the public were told. Brian Jones released a statement on 9 June saying that he had departed because, quote, I no longer see eye to eye with the others over the discs we are cutting, unquote. And Brian Jones was replaced by Mick Taylor. Brian's death. On the 3rd of July 1969, around midnight, Brian Jones was found motionless at the bottom of his pool at Crotchford Farm. His Swedish girlfriend, Anna Wallen, who was also a nurse, was convinced he had a pulse when they pulled him from the pool and did CPR, but Brian was declared dead on arrival at hospital. The coroner's report stated that it was a drowning, but later clarified the death certificate, excuse me, but later stated that it was death by misadventure and noted that Brian's liver and heart were heavily enlarged by past drug and alcohol abuse. Brian Jones is buried 10 foot deep at the Cheltenham Cemetery and he is buried this deep to prevent exhumation by trophy hunters. His body was embalmed, his hair was bleached white and he was placed in an airtight silver and bronze casket. Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman were the only Rolling Stones to attend the funeral. Mick was on his way to Australia to film the Ned Kelly film and I don't know where Keith was. Maybe he thought it was wise not to go. After Brian died, other artists wrote dedications to Brian. Pete Townsend wrote a poem called A Normal Day for Brian, A Man Who Died Every Day. Jimi Hendrix dedicated a song to him on US television. And Jim Morrison published a poem called Ode to L.A. While Thinking of Brian Jones, Deceased. On the 5th of July, 1969, two days after Brian died, the Rolling Stones were to perform a free concert in Hyde Park, and this they did, but they dedicated it to Brian, and before the concert, Mick read out excerpts from Adonais, a poem by Percy Shelley about the death of his friend John Keats, and they released hundreds of white butterflies as part of the tribute. They opened with a Johnny Winter song that was one of Brian's favourites and it's called I'm Yours and I'm Hers. Other bands, the Drovers, wrote a song called She's As Pretty As Brian Jones Was. Jeff Dahl wrote a song called Mick and Keith Killed Brian. And Ted Nugent had a song called Death By Misadventure. There are others. In 1995, Mick was asked by the Rolling Stone magazine if he felt guilty about Brian Jones's death and Mick said... No, I don't really. I do feel that I behaved in a very childish way, but we were very young and in some ways we picked on him. But unfortunately, he made himself a target for it. He was very, very jealous, very difficult, very manipulative. And if you do that in this kind of a group of people, you get back as good as you give, to be honest. I wasn't understanding enough about his drug addiction. No one seemed to know much about drug addiction. Things like LSD were all new. No one knew the harm. People thought cocaine was good for you. Bill Wyman said he formed the band. He chose the members. He named the band. He chose the music we played. He got us gigs. He was very influential, very important, and then slowly lost it. 
highly intelligent and just kind of wasted and blew it all away. There was a murder theory about Brian Jones's death and that was explored in the 2005 film Stoned. The theory was that Frank Thorogood, a tradie who was doing renovations and building work at Brian's house at the time, allegedly killed Brian in a dispute over money. And then senior police allegedly covered up the botched murder investigation by the local police. This murder theory had enough behind it that in 2009, the Sussex police conducted a case review into Brian Jones's death. Investigative journalist Scott Jones gave them new evidence, but in 2010, after the review, the Sussex police said they would not be reopening the case. Bo Diddley said of Brian Jones, he was a little dude that was trying to pull the group ahead. I saw him as the leader. He didn't take no mess. He was a fantastic cat. He handled the group beautifully. But Bo Diddley wasn't there for all of it, was he? When a subsequent owner of Crotchford Farm refurbished the pool in which Brian Jones died, he sold the tiles to Brian Jones fans for £100 each. I find that sad. So Brian Jones, people, drugs got in the way, but it's just a perfect example of a wasted life. And it's a shame because who knows? I mean, Keith and Mick did so much great work in the 70s. What would Brian Jones have done? His death, it's so sad. It's such a waste. When you listen to the Stones music, when they really started getting experimental and Brian started using all the different instruments and he'd just pick it up and play it, it was uplifting. I don't know. It's You've just got to really admire the man's talent and knowledge. It's like you, J-Moss. You can, we play recorder. Don't knock a recorder. We can <laughs> all play recorder. We all were educated above year three. Don't oh, knock no, a recorder. Moss, don't, don't, don't. Don't, 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 don't you dare. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Thank you. Brian Jones played it beautifully in Ruby Tuesday. It was lovely. I mean, let's face Mm. it, you're one of those people, Jim. You can look at an instrument and make music out of it. It's it's an amazing talent to have. And kudos to Brian Jones, kudos to you, Jamos, for having that talent. And it's just such a shame that we will never know I can't help thinking it was a double-edged sword where I think he was being slowly forced out of the leadership of the band. I think that was very, very clear with the focus of, like, the songwriters being Mick and Keith, and uh, he was becoming a little bit more sidelined. But instead of maybe repositioning himself, that's where he made the mistake. And, yes, I know you can watch the rock and roll circus and sometimes he looks incredibly absent mentally in that program. There's also footage of when they were recording Beggar's Banquet and the one that I remember was him collapsing his chair and they just could not rouse him at all and it's like, you know, the middle of the recording session. So they just naturally went to the next person. And, uh, you know, it's ironic part of the thing you're talking about is his ability to get attention because that concert at Hyde Park in July 1969 was actually meant to be a way of introducing the new guitarist, Mick Taylor. And in the end, it ended up being a requiem for Brian Jones. So in a week on away, he got attention again because that was meant to be Mick Taylor's big entrance to the band. They were going to do it with a big bang, so to speak, start off their new tour. He's our new guitarist. But uh, I think the big difference with Mick Taylor is when you're talking about that interweaving of guitars, uh, Mick Taylor was a virtuoso, so that's where, like, the formula kind of went a bit sideways. I agree it's there with Ronnie Wood, but not the same as Mick Taylor. 
Mm, yeah, I was interested to see what you were going to say about Mick Taylor because you've spoken of him before. I just feel so sad. And then there's all those children flopping around who don't know who their dad was and I don't mm. know that he ever really cared. And another big question. he was promiscuous. That's the word. He was promiscuous. Mm. His kids flopping around. Interesting. <laughs> well, just think about it. His kids are now... I mean, he had his first child in 1959. He's got children in their 60s who would be grandparents. Grandparents, yeah. Yes, Mm. but then again, Sid, you yourself are a grandparent. But I'm not in my 60s. Not (laughs) yet. still flopping around too. (laughs) He's flopping. (laughs) Another question I've got about the Brian Jones story is why did they bleach his hair when he died? I mean, they were going to... I didn't know they did that. Well, the account a la Wikipedia was that they embalmed him and bleached his hair white to stick him in the whiz-bang casket that he had. And why would you... Why the hair? Yeah, why the hair? Unless the embalming fluids... I mean, why why did they even tell us? And if they did, was it the embalming fluid or did they bleach his hair for a specific reason? I I find it an odd detail to report. Maybe it was the chlorine. Maybe. No, it would have gone green if it was. Uh, ah, that's true. true. I think it's assuming the, um, at the funeral it was open casket as well. Was it? I mean, why else? No, I mean, why else would you have that kind of presentation that nobody can see, unless it was arsenic poisoning, which can change your hair colour, and they were trying to cover it up. Ooh. Mm. And we get back to serial killers. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Well, it wasn't his um, body at the time. He was drowned. Like toxicology report, what was he on? Oh, toxicology. Pep pills, <gasps> marijuana and something else. <laughs> his shopping list. <laughs> and Jim Morrison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, you remember um, Sesame Street? We want quarter milk. Loaf, loaf of bread, container of milk, milk and, and a stick, a stick of butter. Of butter. He could have easily died of a heart attack. <laughs> well, if he was severely asthmatic, and I think his asthma must have been bad enough to be at least moderate or to severe, it can affect your heart. It can make you go all fluttery and stuff. Or if he's having, if he's overindulging in asthma medication, your heart can go all fluttery as well. So who knows? That may have fed into his illness. I was thinking, oh, he drowned in a pool. Maybe he fell in and the pool water was really, really cold and Mm. that caused... Because that can bring on an asthma attack. It can bring on an asthma attack. It can cause constriction of veins and vessels and things. Or it could just be an old-fashioned drug overdose or maybe someone... If only Eddie was there to heat his pool. Well, that's right. But it was July, so you would think that the pool had some... It's the middle of summer over there. And the pool... It's hardly summer. It's not as we know. By English standards, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so I I just feel sad for Brian. He was his own worst enemy in many cases. Mm -hmm. Um, He really was, but it's just a waste and it's just a shame. It's a real shame because he was so talented and you just wonder what might have been. It sounded like towards the end there that he was a bit of a third wheel in the Rolling Stones and was getting pushed out and so maybe that exacerbated his actual drug and alcohol taking and it sort of spiralled out of control. So whether he would have thought enough to get himself sorted to get back in the band, whether Mm. they would have actually let him in the band. If he was thinking of himself as a third wheel amongst Rolling Stones, that's a different (laughs) way of, of moving altogether. I can see why he would feel left out of that. But it means he's ahead too. Didn't even think of that. 
This is an interesting analogy. Yeah. Yeah. A wheel amongst the stones. I think the Rolling Stones did have a very weird culture. Um, when you think about what happened to Brian Jones, but also look at his replacement, I'm a very big fan of the Mick Taylor era. Uh, Mick Taylor ended his time with the Rolling Stones about December 74. It took him a number of years to basically own up to why he left. And probably what's noticeable is in their very last album, he only really properly contributed to one song and had that Mick Taylor feel to it. But it was a kind of very poor album. And he said two things. That hanging around particularly with Keith, all he was finding is either Keith was off his face too much and he didn't like the culture. And then he said, I had to disappear because I was developing my own addictions. So there was like another virtuoso, another great player because of their culture Ooh. by the wayside. And look, a good way of looking at it, when people are talking about the Rolling Stone stuff they like, yes, you can talk about Painted Black, which is a great song, or I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I know that's Brian Jones's era. But when you start thinking like you can't always get what you want, when you start talking about Brown Sugar, Tumbling Dice, Angie, just to name a few songs, that's Mick Taylor era. Mm. And um, that's the era where they're virtuoso. I think they virtually burnt him out. Yeah, I'm just um, looking up Keith's book, Life, where he reminds me that Crotchford Farm, where Brian lived, he had bought it, was previously the home of A.A. A. Milne, the author of Winnie the Pooh. Now, where that was it? through in their music too, don't you think? I think so. I think it does. Sticky fingers. Keith says... I knew Frank Thoroughgood who made a deathbed confession that he'd killed Brian Jones by drowning him in the swimming pool where Brian's body was found some minutes after other people had seen him alive. But I'm always wary of deathbed confessions because the only person there is the person he's supposed to have said it to, some uncle, daughter or whatever. Whether he did or not, I don't know. Brian had bad asthma and he was taking quaaludes and tweenals? T-U-I-N-A-L-S, which are not the best things to dive underwater on. Very easy to choke on that stuff. He was heavily sedated. He had high tolerance for drugs. I'll give him that. But weigh that against the coroner's report, which showed that he was suffering from pleurisy, an enlarged heart and a diseased liver. Still, Something I can imagine. going to get him. <laughs> yep. Keith says, still, I can imagine this scenario of Brian being so obnoxious to Thoroughgood and the building crew he had working on Brian's house that were, they were just pissing around with him. He went under and didn't come up. But when someone says, I did Brian, at the very most, I'd put it down to manslaughter. All right, you may have pushed him under, but you weren't there to murder him. He pissed off the builders, whining son of a bitch. It wouldn't have mattered if the builders were there or not. He was at that point in his life where there wasn't any. That's what Ooh. Keith says. You say he was, he was embalmed? Yeah. So is it the same embalmer that did Keith Richard? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a slightly different formula. Well, Keith's hair is now white. Oh, What's left of it? Man. So Brian Jones, it's just sad. I find it just sad. He epitomised his look of the 60s to me with his fur coats and his amazing haircut. I think he just looked incredible. And I, I suppose because he, growing up, I, he'd already obviously died before I was born, so I didn't really know who he was. It's like he sort of existed. And then the Rolling Stones that I knew is more of the, like, the late 70s. Yeah, me too. And and so that's where I was sort of like, who, he was always quite mysterious to mm. me. It's not like we've heard, ever heard him talk or he wasn't the singer and he was just like this really mysterious guy in the band in that the happened to die. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because Keith's quite the showman and so is, well, obviously Mick. Mick. <laughs> yeah. Mick is the showman. 
I don't know that a band could have too many more showmen than Mick and Keith when you've got two of such That's giant. That's why Charlie and Bill were such good counterweight. Yeah, yeah. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of part two of our discussion of the concept of and members of the 27 Club. Thank you to my fellow podcasters for participating and thank you, dear listener, for joining us. If you would like to contact us, you can do so at podnoname at gmail.com or at at podnoname on Facebook. Please listen to the conclusion of our discussion of the 27 Club in our next episode of the podcast with no name. Until then, take care.